This is Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. It's November 6th. It's a new episode. And I had a brutal week last week, work-wise. I'm probably going to go into it next episode to give a little bit of uh, a background of, of what kind of week is a normal one in my career. Sometimes it's um, nothing you can imagine that could happen to a criminal defense lawyer, but this is what the practice is. I mean, sometimes you're a lawyer, sometimes you're a psychologist. There's a lot of different nuances to the job. But this week, I want to talk about a few things. I don't want to just talk about what's going on in Israel and Gaza. It's something, of course, that delights me, but I don't know that everybody wants to hear just that. And I and I do have to talk about some other things, even though in my mind, and I'm going to talk about it today, it, it really encompasses not just that region. I think that we can see whether you're listening to me in the United States, anywhere, or anywhere in Europe, you're seeing the violent demonstrations that are going on by Islamists all over the world, the, the, the crazed anti-Semitism. So you can understand that that what's going on there has ramifications very far away from that area. So we're going to talk about that in a bit. In addition, I want to talk about what happens to Donald Trump if he gets convicted before the election next November. Does he go to jail? Can he run? Can he run from jail if he gets jail time? Um, I think I see it pretty clearly, and I, and I wouldn't say that it's a 100% guaranteed lock, but I would say that the way I sort of went through it methodically, and as I'll explain it to you in a bit, I feel pretty certain as to how it's going to play out. Now, the other thing I want to talk about later in the program is what New York City was like when the marches in the city weren't just radical Islamists threatening to cut our heads off. Uh, there was a time, if you can believe, I know it's almost hard to believe if you're a young person, even after 9-11, you actually had uh, marches, you had gatherings in the streets of New York City that were not just about jihad not just about gassing the Jews. I know, I know it's hard to believe. But I want to get back on that because that's obviously the topic of the day. It's been less than 30 days since Palestinians tortured and massacred 1,400 Israelis, civilians mostly, all of them just about. They were all civilians at the time. Already, it's you know, less than a month and we're hearing these fake but constant complaints about a humanitarian crisis in Gaza not just from foreign Arab countries, but uh, from an increasing number of Democrats in America. They are screeching for a ceasefire in American cities, in European cities, the marches, the protests, the hate. All of these uh, protests in the United States are heavily organized with ready-made signs, people bust in. It's all being done in a very organized fashion into D.C. on Saturday up to, when I read this in the New York Post, up to possibly 300,000 snarling Jew haters in D.C., dwarfing anything that happened on January 6th during that so-called insurrection. The protesters in D.C., and they were also in Philadelphia, screaming death to Jews, gas to Jews, Allah Akbar, God is great, kill everybody, you know, the usual things that you find at an Islamist uh, get-together. They were defacing our monuments in D.C., uh, painting them, uh, trying to scale the fences surrounding the White House, putting up the Palestinian uh, terror flag, you know, the usual, trying to be the most intimidating as possible. The very people who claim to be so concerned about the humanitarian crisis in Gaza, the death toll in Gaza are calling for the extermination of Jews worldwide and the destruction of Israel, which I think has about nine and a half million people inside. But these are the people that are calling for the ceasefire because of humanitarian purposes. So you can see that there's a little bit of hypocrisy going on here. It should be clear that the purported peaceniks aren't for peace at all. I mean, that couldn't be more obvious when you're screaming gas the Jews, Allah Akbar, Hitler was right, and then you're saying that you care about the poor children in Gaza. That's just a bunch of bullshit. You can't say that you want Israel destroyed, Jews slaughtered worldwide, and say that you're for peace. They want a ceasefire even as they support 
Hamas, the Palestinian terror group, which has gotten, you know, about 10,000 Gazans killed already by using civilians as human shields, getting the place destroyed. You can't justify claiming to want world peace, to care about people being killed in Gaza, again, while at the same time calling for the death of Jews worldwide and celebrating the slaughter of 1,400 civilians on October 7 inside Israel. You can't support a genocidal Muslim terror group which uses human shields and also claim you're all about humanitarian purposes. You just can't. It's an act. And it's designed clearly, and this should be obvious to anybody with a, a you know, room temperature IQ, that these protests, these angry, intimidating protests, are designed to pressure the American administration designed to make it seem as if there's actually a groundswell of American support for the Palestinian terror enclave in Gaza. It's all carefully planned and paid for. If any Republican had a brain in their head, again, they'd be investigating who is paying for these savages to be bussed in uh, to terrorize the big cities uh, of America. Now, you can't really claim that you're marching for peace when not a single person in the D.C. protests or marches or whatever you want to call them, the people in D.C. and London and Philadelphia, not one time calling for the release of any of the hostages held by Hamas or the end of Hamas, a genocidal terror group, or their use of human shields. It's only against the Jews and it's against America. That's all these protests are throughout the world. Again, it's clearly hypocrisy and it's clearly designed for another reason. You know, and by the way, somebody may want to tell the Muslim terror marchers, marchers that are calling for a ceasefire, that Hamas hasn't called for one. I mean, barely. Uh, they say they want a ceasefire as long as they get uh, everything they want. Their leader said that Hamas will never lay down its arms. He said that, quote, annihilation will be the fact not only of Jews, but also of their helpers and of the, and of the people who trusted them, cooperated with them, and who betrayed their cause and their religion for personal interests. This is what the protesters are working hand in hand for. They're supporting a genocidal Muslim terror group. And by fake crying over the deaths of the civilians in Gaza, I believe they're going to get their wish soon, mainly because I think our present administration can barely stand supporting Israel, and as it has been reported, is about to force Israel to stop the war, perhaps in a matter of weeks. Who knows? But there is a major rupture in the Democratic Party, as so many of them hate Jews in Israel and seemingly love the people who have the identical mindset of the ones who did 9-11, the 9-11 hijackers, the same mindset of Osama bin Laden. And I'm going to explain, if it's not obvious already, why those calling for a ceasefire who claim they simply want peace, simply want an end to war, even as they're calling for the deaths of Jews worldwide, are ensuring more death and more destruction by insisting upon a ceasefire at this point. And as I discussed last week, the people screaming for the ceasefire are either Jew haters terror supporters, or useful idiots. Now, it has to be one of those three. You can't be anything but. Now, there can be some overlap. You can be a useful idiot and also be a Jew hater. So, you know, there are there's some overlap, but those are the three categories that all of the protesters and people calling for a ceasefire belong to. After the October 7 massacre of Israelis by Hamas, Israel went into Gaza, I'm going to give you some background, and began killing terrorists. The terrorists had to presume that they couldn't defeat the IDF. Of course they knew that. I mean, look, these people aren't stupid. They're savages, they're wild animals, they're child molesters, they're honor killers, but they understand the jihad. I mean, that's, that's their job. They wouldn't be hiding in tunnels if they thought that they could actually fight the IDF Muslim terrorist to man. You know, so the way they fight is they hide in tunnels and they emerge occasionally and, and fire back. But again, they recognize they can't match the firepower of the IDF, so they need to figure out a way to achieve their goal, which is simply to survive the war. They know they can't win a conventional war. 
But they don't need to win the war in a conventional way. A victory for Hamas is simply preventing Israel from destroying them. The protesters know this, which is why they're hysterical trying to stop the war before Hamas gets destroyed. As with the prior wars in Israel with uh, the terrorists and Israel, when Hamas survives a war, they emerge stronger. They then import or create better weapons, better rockets that can hit further into Israel. They're getting them smuggled in by Iran through Egypt. The failure to destroy Hamas in the past by Israel is what led to the October 7 massacre. It's not even a question. These are facts. So as long as Hamas survives, they can claim victory. For them, they're willing to let Gaza be destroyed. I mean, that couldn't be more obvious. They're willing to let Palestinians be destroyed as long as they can survive the war. In fact, they need the destruction of Palestinians in order to survive the war. They must have them. And then if they survive, they can gather their resources from Iran and eventually kill more Israelis, which is all they were created to be. They're zombies for Allah. So how do they do it? Again, they can't engage Israel directly they would lose very quickly. They don't fight very well, man, or whatever you want to call them, subhuman to man. They're very good at killing women, children, civilians. There's no level of morality that applies to them. They're full-blown Muslim terrorists, fully amoral and fully diseased. They need to hide, but hiding in tunnels isn't enough. Eventually, Israel finds all the tunnels and kills all the terrorists. That does not work for Hamas. They need to figure out another way to stay alive. And as I said, the very obvious answer is they need the world to pressure Israel to stop destroying them. Hence the reason for these very carefully coordinated and well-attended protests or marches. But what they've done in the past, and they're doing it again, is they ensure that a humanitarian crisis develops in Gaza as quickly as possible. As I discussed last week, Israel's Prime Minister Netanyahu, he screwed this war up, I believe, by starting the ground war too slowly. The stopwatch started as soon as they started bombing Gaza. He should have known this. Everybody knew this. For some reason, he was the one person who didn't. Hamas uses civilians as shields. They hide in apartment buildings, in tunnels under hospitals, under schools. They shoot rockets from playgrounds. Why? Why do they hide their weapons under mosques, hospitals, and schools? Because they know that if Israel hits any of these buildings, there will be a massive global response, an angry response, about the poor people in the hospital, the poor civilians. And Hamas is smart enough to know that there's so much Jew hate in the world that even when Israel isn't responsible for hitting a hospital, which is what happened when the Palestinians hit the hospital themselves a few weeks ago, Israel's going to get blamed. And the people that are doing the blaming, most of them know that Israel didn't hit the hospital. It's like Rashida Tlaib, the people like her of the world. They'll continue to spread the lie that Israel hit the hospital in Gaza weeks later. They know it. They know what the truth is, but they know they can take that propaganda and run with it. I mean, Rashida Tlaib's not a moron. She knows that Israel didn't hit the hospital. There hasn't been a single report that even remotely suggested Israel could have done it. But it's propaganda. And like Nazis, propaganda is used by the Palestinians to great ends. So they have to create a humanitarian crisis for regular Gazans. They can only survive by regular Gazans dying. The more that that die, the better. Uh, They can only survive if the results on the battlefield can be used to globally pressure Israel to stop the war. And that's what's happening now. This is why they steal the aid that comes into Gaza. Gazans need fuel. Hamas has a ton of fuel for their rocket launchers. Israel doesn't want to send any fuel into Gaza for humanitarian purposes because they know that Hamas has plenty for everybody and is going to steal what goes in. And it's not like Hamas has any interest in the civilians in Gaza. They've publicly stated that the tunnels where they hide in are for them to protect them, the terrorists, that it's up to Israel and the world to protect the civilians in Gaza. So this has been a race between Israel trying to find Hamas among the civilian shields that they're hiding behind, hiding under, and uh, Hamas, which is ensuring the worst possible humanitarian crisis they can create to get the world to stop Israel. That's the race. Can Israel find the terrorists before the terrorists kill or have killed enough Gazans? 
It's why Hamas has forced Palestinians to stay in their homes when Israel told them to leave an area. Why they would never uh, let hospitals, Hamas would never let hospitals have their patients moved away from a battle area because Hamas wants those hospitals hit. They want Gazans killed in their homes, in the hospitals. It's why when there was a convoy of Gazans moving south to get away from the fighting, Hamas gunned some of them down, their own people. It's why on Saturday, when Israel allowed a three-hour window for uh, Palestinians to move unmolested away from the fighting, Hamas started rocketing the area. One in five of their rockets they launched toward Israel lands in Gaza and kills Gazans. Hamas counts those dead bodies as victims of Israel's attack. Those are wonderful deaths for them, even though they're the ones that killed them. Because dead Palestinians help Hamas, regardless of who did the killing. It's why Hamas hides weapons and killers in their ambulances, because they win either way. Either they get the killers and the weapons to where they want them to go, or Israel destroys the ambulance, and all the Jew haters can use that as an argument, propaganda, that there must be a ceasefire as they demonize Israel. Again, do you really think Rashida Tlaib and Bernie Sanders don't know that Hamas uses ambulances to move terrorists and weapons? Of course they do. But when an ambulance is destroyed by Israel, they can use that propaganda against Israel. It's all about using propaganda to defeat Israel. Remember, you have a general public very much wanting to believe the worst about Israel because the general public hates Jews. And many don't believe the lies about Israel told by Hamas and their supporters, but they pretend they do, as I said, because it achieves the goal of demonizing Israel. There was an ambulance that Israel destroyed in Gaza, carrying killers over the weekend. The Secretary General of the UN described it as a horror, his word, and called for a ceasefire. But when Hamas terrorists killed Israeli ambulance drivers who were treating Israelis on October 7, they shot them in their driver's seats inside the ambulances. They lit them on fire. The UN said nothing, nothing. Because criticizing Hamas doesn't help Hamas survive the war. It doesn't help the UN's point, which is to hurt Israel. So why criticize Hamas in any kind of real way? Ripping Israel, any lie possible being used, gets the UN, the Jew haters, the terrorists one step closer to Hamas surviving this and destroying Israel eventually. This is why there's such little outcry about the Muslim terror supporters all over our American college campuses, all over our big cities. How does criticizing them help Hamas? And the global media, the public, in a large part, wants to help Hamas, wants to help them survive. So there's silence from the left. There's silence from the Jew haters, and there's plenty of silence from the far right as well. This is the one thing they all can agree upon. By the way, I did some quick research. This is funny if you're in college. The American universities who receive the most donations from Muslim countries. By the way, Muslim countries send the most money than any foreign uh, countries. It's, it's from Muslim countries. Mostly from Qatar, by the way, which has given $5 billion to American colleges since 9-11. All designed to infect our campuses uh, with their Islamist terror slop. They protect Hamas. Their leaders, Hamas's leaders, actually live in five-star hotels in Qatar. They run Al Jazeera, Hamas's media mouthpiece. Qatar is the biggest foreign donor to American universities, and their actions by sending money to American leftist universities ensures that mentally diseased Islamist students get sent to our universities. They give the money, and then they say, now you're going to take our terror students. And the liberals don't care because all they care about is the fucking money. I mean, you saw that there, uh, you know, on October 7th, after October 7th, the Islamist students are activated all over American campuses. No one knew how bad it was. I mean, you should have if you, if you have your eyes uh, in your head working. But how about in Cornell, upstate New York? Cornell receives twice as much Muslim terror dollars as the second place school on the list. And they're the place with the crazy Jew hate with the student that said he was going to cut the throats of, of Jewish students. They love Hamas on the campus, as we all saw. Guess who's number two? Georgetown. 
Well, Georgetown is a Muslim terror slop university now in a Muslim terror slop city, D.C., we saw over the weekend, right? Northwestern is top five. Guess what? More Muslim terror slop all over the Northwestern campus and the professors too at these places. It's not just the students. Northwestern is another Jew-hating, Hamas-loving campus. If you don't believe me, look it up yourself. Harvard, NYU are up there as well. What a coincidence. All these universities in America that are filled with these wild, rabid, Jew-hating, America-hating, Muslim terror students all receive the most money from a Muslim terror state. These leftist shitholes sold out to Muslim terror states in our country. How utterly despicable. Now, I can tell you not to give a penny to these schools, parents that are out there that have students going to them, even if you have to just give them tuition. They're using the money that they get from the Muslim terror states, from Qatar, from you if you give it to them, to hire Jew-hating professors. That's what the Muslim terror money wants. They want to infect the campuses, and the best way to do it is to get the professors to put them in there. And they need to appease that Arab money so they do what they're told. It's a disgrace, and in a nutshell reveals how utterly evil American liberal academia is. But here's the rub. I'm reading in the paper, we're all getting excited. All those CEO, CEOs who claim they're going to stop giving money to their, their colleges that are now overrun with Jew hate. You think the schools didn't know that they would do this, these CEOs? The colleges made a business decision a long time ago. They knew they'd get billions from the Muslim terror states and only millions from American alumni. So they sold out to the terrorists, and they don't care if they lose a few million from American donors. Liberals don't give a shit about America. They care about money. They care about Jew hate. That's what they care about. That's win-win if you can do it together. Our colleges and universities are fully infected and invaded by radical Muslim terror students and the radical Muslim terror states, which sent them. Full stop. As I stated earlier, it's being reported that the Biden administration is about to tell Israel to stop the war. Somehow up to 300,000 angry Arabs and leftists showed up in D.C., in Philadelphia, screaming for the heads of Jews. Again, God knows who paid them, who bust them in. I don't think I saw more than one or two Republican politicians even discuss this over the weekend, and certainly no Democrats. I mean, what is going on in our country that our leaders are just ignoring this? They're defacing our monuments. They're saying Allah Akbar, the same thing that the 9-11 terrorists said before they killed 3,000 Americans. It's 22 years later, almost to the day. Is this what we've allowed happen to America? In 22 years? There should be none of them here. Instead, we've allowed them to infect us, to invade us. I suppose the American politicians think that Israel is the only place affected by the jihadists. They, they, they couldn't be more wrong, wrong. Just look at our streets. You think this ends just with Jews being attacked? You think we aren't getting more terror attacks soon? We let like 10 million of them in over the last four years. The Democrats uh, let them in. You know how many jihadists from Muslim terror states are here? and ticking like time bombs? And we're going to get another 10, 15 million over the next four years? We're getting more terror attacks. And it may not just be the traditional terror attacks of blowing stuff up. We may just have mass attacks by hundreds of thousands of people going door to door in big cities. You saw about these protests. Who's going to stop them? The National Guard? Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. Who's going to stop all of them if they're angry jihadists with weapons? Tell me, how are we going to stop it? I just hope that it's confined to liberal cities because they really deserve it the most. Even if Israel had gotten closer to destroying Hamas, there would have been a massive slaughter of more Palestinian civilians by Hamas or by putting more civilians in harm's way to ensure their destruction. 
in order to get the world to stop Israel. But our administration will do the dirty work for Hamas. Don't worry. And this is the main reason I hate Donald Trump. And I've been trying to make this clear during all these podcasts. Had he behaved like an adult instead of an utter moron, a moron child, he'd still be in office now. And none of this would have occurred in Israel or here with these protests because the terrorists were afraid of him. But Trump just cares about Trump and he lost the White House. And now the far leftists who hate America and Israel, they're in charge and Trump will ensure that we get another four years of this leftist garbage when we have a snarling Muslim terror hater in Ron DeSantis on the sidelines doing nothing. And as good as Trump was in scaring the terrorists, he didn't do a thing about the universities. He said he was going to, he didn't do a damn thing. He just doesn't have the brain power or the attention span or the desire to really clean this shit up. As I said, you're going to get another 10 million over the next four years, many from Muslim terror states. I wish he would have taken the job more seriously instead of fighting on Twitter. I mean, that's how I feel about him. A lot of the policies I agree with, but the man just, uh, he's, he's indirectly responsible for what's happening today. And with all the concern from the peaceniks about the carnage in Gaza, why didn't any of them stop and say, hey, to the Hamas, why did you act like such animals? Because the world knows this is what Palestinians are. No one expects them to be even remotely human. Are you telling me that not a single protester, the hundreds of thousands of people, felt that what Hamas did on October 7 was wrong? Nobody felt that? Nobody said anything? If the world simply said enough of this double standard, the Islamist power over the rest of us would end immediately. If Israel treated Palestinians the way Palestinians treated 1,400 Israelis on October 7, this ends. And believe me, it may come to that. I won't shed a, a, a tear for the Palestinians or the Muslim terrorists. Not a tear. But what is Israel supposed to do now? What happens when Israel is forced to grant the ceasefire that the leftists, the terror supporters of the world want? What's Israel even accomplished at this point? They killed a bunch of terrorists. Great. They didn't destroy the terror group that massacred 1,400 Israelis on October 7. And by not destroying Hamas, there will be another October 7 massacre. Hamas promised it last week. They said they're doing it again. I mean, does anybody listen to them? By agreeing to a ceasefire, Israel will still not have gotten the hostages back. Why don't any of the people calling for a ceasefire insist that the hostages be returned first? Or insist that Hamas surrender? Because the people calling for the ceasefire don't care about the hostages or Israel's security. They just want Hamas to survive, and that's it. And Israel will be forced to empty its prisons of Palestinian maniacs to get back, what, 60 to 100 hostages that are left alive that Hamas hasn't executed already? So Israel accomplishes nothing with a ceasefire, which is why they don't want it now. But what does a ceasefire do for Hamas and, and Iran? A ceasefire is immediately declared by Hamas as a victory. They survive the, the Zionist army. Uh, this will help them with recruiting and help them get more weapons to kill more Israelis, get more money, and more October 7s will happen. And stopping the war in Gaza might save some innocent Palestinian lives in the short term. I don't disagree. If they have a ceasefire today, there's no more killing for the next, you know, until the war would normally end. But Hamas and Iran have never cared about innocent Palestinian lives, so it really makes no difference to them. Naturally, the Palestinians, the civilians, are such base Jew haters, such base terror supporters, that they'll still support Hamas no matter how many civilians are killed. This is a Muslim terror enclave, which is a purely evil place. What other place on earth has stores named after Hitler? Only a diseased, Jew-hating enclave like Gaza. They've repeatedly said they are happy to die if it will result in dead Jews. So when Israel stops the war, even if there's 10,000 dead Palestinian civilians, they're still going to celebrate Hamas. You watch. You're not going to see any anger directed towards Hamas. When Hamas fires rockets into Israel, because they haven't uh, been destroyed uh, this time, when they commit terror attacks again, Israel's going to go back in and they're going to kill thousands more. So while the ceasefire may protect Palestinians in the very short term, 
It's going to cost many more lives in the long term. It's not even a question. This couldn't be more obvious. For Iran, the terror state that bankrolls Hamas, they will learn a very important lesson if there's a ceasefire forced upon Israel. We can get away with torturing and massacring Jews with our proxy Hamas, and the world still won't let Israel destroy them. They'll think, well, we have another terror proxy, Hezbollah in Jordan. We can unleash them on Israel without any fear that the world will let Israel destroy them, which, of course, will result in a war between Israel and Lebanon, which will kill you know, maybe 10,000 Israelis because Hezbollah has much better weapons than Hamas does, and probably hundreds of thousands of Lebanese will be killed. But Iran doesn't care. Hezbollah doesn't care. And the Jew haters don't care. As long as Israel is attacked— that will bring it one step closer to extinction. These people don't care about their lives. They're Muslim terror supporters. Keep in mind, Hezbollah only exists to destroy Israel. They're not here to protect Gaza or the Palestinians. If they were, they would have helped Hamas during this war. They have, what, 100,000 rockets aimed at Israel, and they didn't use any of them as Gaza's being obliterated. Hezbollah exists solely as a terror proxy of Iran to implement Iran's desires in the Middle East. And the main thing is to destroy Israel at the time of Iran's choosing. Even a Saudi prince, Prince bin Mossad, said this, Hezbollah is Iran, not for the Palestinian people. Anything they say otherwise is a lie. The Gulf Arabs get it, but the Democrats don't. Iran has to be shocked that the world is, is calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. I mean, civilians in Israel were burned alive, raped, babies stuck in ovens, children had their hands, their heads cut off, parents were killed in front of their children, children were raped in front of their parents, and the world, including the United States government, began calling for a ceasefire on day one of Israel's response. Iran is attacking through its proxies, American troops in the Middle East. America's response? A few shots back at them. Iran has paid no price for what they have done this past month. Nothing. Nothing. And now they're saying that if the Gaza war doesn't end, America will be attacked. Well, who are they going to be attacked by? by Iran's terror proxies. Unless and until Iran pays a heavy price, they are just being emboldened, and that will cause them to continue to attack our interests, American interests in the Middle East, and Israel. A coalition of the willing. Remember we had that against ISIS? Various countries working together to destroy that? Uh, yet again, another Muslim terror group should have been formed and Iran attacked after October 7. The mullahs in Iran should have been deposed. No one is going to stop, step in to help Iran in a war. It's not like anybody helped Gaza, helped the Palestinians. No one's going to help Iran. You think China's going to get involved to protect Iran? Had some nations simply lined up and made Iran understand that the October 7 massacre, which was unprovoked, will cost them dearly? My guess is this kind of terrorism stops. But naturally, when it comes to protecting Israel, there are very few volunteers. So we're going to need terror attacks on American soil, on European soil, for anyone to wake up. Problem is, we let in so many of these Islamist demons, you may find that parts of America celebrate terror attacks here now. They're here. Have you seen the marches, the protests, the anger, the rage, the terror? Look at our college campuses. You don't think if 9-11 happened again here, there wouldn't be celebrations on American college campuses in major cities? We let the disease in. We are going to get what we deserve. We already have, to some extent. More is coming, though, I promise. By not letting Israel destroy Hamas, we're telling Iran they can continue terrorizing the world. So a ceasefire right now will ensure that Iran and its proxies will be given a green light to terrorize any Western nation, any Muslim nation, and they do that too, as they have for decades. Is that really what any of us want? Even Blinken, America's Secretary of State, said, how can there be a ceasefire when Hamas still exists? They're just going to continue this. I read that Bernie Sanders said the same thing. They get it. You can't have a ceasefire as long as Hamas is in place because nothing ever changes. 
You can't have a two-state solution with Israel and the Palestinians when Hamas is in charge. Because they're, they've told us, we don't care what you do, we're going to continue to kill you. So what are you going to do? Give, you're going to reward them for this? Of course you're not. By, by forcing Israel to have a ceasefire, it becomes a blueprint on how to destroy Israel. Hamas will simply kill as many Palestinian civilians as possible by hiding amongst them or killing them themselves, and then the war ends. Hamas can do whatever it wants. Why didn't anyone complain when Hamas broke the ceasefire between them and Israel on October 7? Israel should be forced to declare another ceasefire with a group that butchered 1,400 Israelis and broke a ceasefire? It's absurd. Elizabeth Warren, who's calling for a ceasefire, she knows that it's absurd. Barack Obama, he knows that it's absurd. They just want Israel destroyed. So this is the first step to getting to that goal, letting Hamas survive, letting Iran become more emboldened. Where were these so-called peaceniks when Syria's dictator Assad butchered 500,000 of his own people, including thousands of Palestinians who were gassed? Poison gas. Assad destroyed an entire Palestinian refugee camp in Syria. There was barely a peep from the Palestinians in Gaza or the West Bank. None from their supporters globally. None from anybody in America. No marches. No upheaval on college campuses. That's saved for the Jews. And now even Palestinians support Assad again. The man who slaughtered them. Why? Because he's against the Jews too, like them. That's more important to them than the value of their own miserable lives. When China imprisoned a million Muslims, the Uyghurs, where are the marches in Europe and in America? A million of them. When Putin massacred Ukrainians, where were the marches in America and in Europe? Silence. Because stopping Assad, stopping China, stopping Putin does not help destroy Israel. Only when the world doesn't care if Hamas kills their own people will the Hamas strategy of creating humanitarian crises in Gaza to win a war end to. Only when the world allows Israel to treat Hamas the way Hamas treated them, this is not going to end. And let's be honest, the Palestinians deserve it. And they deserve it 10 times over. And again, the need to finish off Hamas is so clearly, obviously needed to prevent future wars. There will be a sea change in this world when dealing with Muslim terror if Israel is allowed to finish the job. But you can see the impact of our unchecked immigration policies in our streets all over European big cities. You're getting these crazy Muslim terror rallies. They've taken over. The numbers are too great, and that dictates politics. A French Jewish woman was stabbed in the stomach on Saturday and a swastika painted on her door. She had a mezuzah on her door. It's a religious symbol that shows that you're Jewish. Well, guess what? Some terrorist or some Nazi saw it and stabbed her in the stomach and put a swastika on the door. Where is the press about that? European Jews are told to hide any symbol of their Jewishness. For what? Is this Nazi Germany again? They have to do it or else. They'll get attacked by either the Islamist horde that they welcomed in or just the traditional Jew haters from Europe who hate the Muslims so much, but they hate the Jews more. Unlikely allies, huh? Just as the Islamist horde in America allies with the far left and plenty from the far right, what else can they agree upon but their Jew hate? The West was moronic to let this disease in. They allowed in the destroyers of their own culture in Europe and in America. They came here not to love America. They came here to destroy America. And as I said, up to hundreds of thousands of terror supporters in D.C. on Saturday calling for the destruction of Israel, not calling for peace, not the return of hostages. The destruction of Israel and the murder of Jews. New York City is roiled by these terror supporters, calling for gassing Jews just a mile from ground zero. Los Angeles, Chicago, all over America. We let this fucking disease in after 9-11. How utterly shameful. How utterly shameful to elect Barack Hussein Obama, 
a Muslim terror-supporting Jew hater who attended a church for decades where he heard Jew hate weekly from the preacher. We elected him, and the first thing he did was travel to Muslim nations and apologize for what America did to Muslims. Seven years after 9-11, over the weekend, Obama had to be heard on this. He couldn't keep his mouth shut. We don't hear from the guy except once every 10 years. But this weekend, he blamed Israel equally with Hamas for the war. Liberal Jews, fuck you. You gave us Obama. Joe Biden's administration is barely able to continue supporting Israel because they're getting so much pushback from their own party. Muslim terror supporters, that's what's in their party. You think these terror supporters are stopping at Israel? Less than two weeks after Palestinians massacred 1,400 Israelis, American Secretary of State Blinken had to have listening sessions with Muslim, Arab-American, and self-loathing Jewish staffers due to their frustrations about America supporting Israel in the war against terrorists in Gaza. Who could possibly think that Israel shouldn't have gone in there? That they should live with this? These are the people, these Gazans, who did the massacre, they celebrated on 9-11. And yet our administration faced a result from their own staff due to its supporting Israel over these Muslim terror supporters. Despite the fact that Jews make up only 2% of America, they also make up 60% of the hate crimes in America. And as the number of hate crimes rise... As college campuses have become hunting grounds for Jews, the Biden administration felt it was important last week to roll out their, quote, national strategy to counter Islamophobia? What the fuck? Naturally, they used the affirmative action imbecile Kamala Harris as the point person, you know, cackling idiocy. It was so dumb but it was needed for the administration because they were pressured by Muslim politicians in swing states to stop American aid to Israel in this war, or else they'd tell their massive Muslim voter base not to vote for Biden next year in the election. And Biden and the administration complied, first by inviting these animals to the White House, next to roll out this phony Islamophobia initiative as Jew hate spreads like wildfire all over the world. Pathetic leftist American Jews are a major part of the problem. Not only do they vote Democratic, but they're starting to hate Israel more, mainly because they want to fit in with the Jew haters in their own damn party. Here's something funny. This Kamala Harris, her idiot leftist Jew husband, Doug Emhoff, who was born a Jew, Naturally, he's a pathetic weakling of a Jew, a Jew in name only, but the administration sent this sniveling coward to meet with Jewish groups in England as he's some kind of Jew who represents all American Jews. Guess what? His own daughter is not Jewish. She's some kind of, I don't know, pronoun trans freak, and she just helped raise $8 million for Gaza for an organization with ties to Palestinian terrorism which will surely mean Hamas will get some of this money. This piece of shit, Emhoff, is the house Jew? He's the Uncle fucking Tom for Jews in America? Last point, and I'm getting sick of this topic. Because Obama was completely tricked by Putin in Syria a decade ago, Syria was using poison gas on its own people, and Obama said, that's a red line. You can slaughter 500,000 of your own people. We won't do a thing, but if you use poison gas, then we're going to step in. Well, guess what? Naturally, Obama not only called off the American airstrikes in Syria, but he let Putin and Russia into Syria under the false promise by Putin to clean up Syria's chemical weapon program. Not only did Putin not do this, of course, because he's smarter than Obama, but Syria gassed their own people again, and Russia took a foothold in Syria and the Middle East. And the Russians assisted Iran in letting them get weapons to Hezbollah in Lebanon. And they let Iran get a foothold in the Middle East on Israel's border, all because of Obama's negligence. Now Putin is arming Syria. He surely helped Hamas with their attack against Israel. And Putin, Russia, is aligned with Iran and China, our biggest enemies. That's the new axis of evil. America's biggest enemies. 
and Iran and its proxies are surrounding Israel. I hate to say it, but the war between the Ukraine and Russia just became much more important, mainly because of the dominoes that were first tipped over by Obama's idiocy. And Russia must be defeated, if only to weaken the China-Russia-Iran evil axis that is formed against the United States. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. I'll be back in a second. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. I'm back. Uh, A question I get a lot from uh, listeners of the podcast, is Trump going to go to prison? If he does, can he run for president next year? Can he run if he's in jail at the time? Well, Let's break this down methodically. The criminal trial, which will most likely end with a conviction, is against Trump. He has four cases. Is the D.C. case in which he's accused of trying to subvert the 2020 election results. The case has, and and here are the reasons why, the case has an Obama-appointed activist judge and has some pretty bad evidence against Trump. The case also is going to have a jury, which will surely be filled with people who hate Trump, as the trial will be in D.C. It's also the criminal trial with a firm starting date, the first one, and it's before the election next year. I think jury selection is scheduled to start on February 9th. Jury selection could take a few weeks. My belief is that Trump will be convicted in this case before the November 2024 election. So what happens then? First of all, he can be a convicted felon and still run for president. In order to run for president, you need to be 35 years old. You need to be a natural-born American citizen. I believe you need to have lived in America for a certain period of time. I think it's 15 years maybe before running for president. A criminal record or even a jail sentence does not prevent him from running. In 1920, a socialist named Eugene Debs ran for president from his prison cell and got like 901,000 votes. The more important question is whether Trump will be in prison at the time of the election next November, assuming he's convicted, let's say sometime next summer. Unlike the New York false documents slash hush money case, or even the Florida classified documents case, I think he faces real jail time in D.C. I don't think he does in these other two cases. As for the Georgia Rico case, if he's convicted of the top charge, it's a five-year mandatory uh, prison minimum, but there's no chance that he's going to be convicted before the election. I don't think the, uh, election, the, uh, the trial will even start before the election. However, if and when he is convicted there, I still don't think that he will be because I think that it's, there's too many conservatives still in Georgia. There is no bail pending appeal if he receives a sentence, I think, of five or more years. He goes right in if he's convicted of the top count if he was a regular defendant. So the D.C. case is the one most concerning for Trump before the election, not only for his purposes of liberty, but also all the bad stuff that's going to come out when he should be talking about his wonderful achievements, like cleaning his plate last night at dinner, perhaps. Uh, If he's convicted, the sentencing is usually set four months later which will be after the election. It can be delayed numerous times. It will be delayed numerous times. So he surely will not be in prison at the time of the election. I don't see how this judge, despite being a partisan leftist hack, will be able to jail Trump upon conviction. He's going to certainly appeal the conviction, and that could take years to resolve. If somehow he wins the election next year and his criminal appeals were exhausted, let's say while uh, during the four years that he's president, I think there would be significant litigation to prevent him from going to prison while he's serving as president, namely because his being incarcerated interferes with his responsibility as president of the United States. This is going to be all new ground litigation, but I don't anticipate him going to jail anytime soon. Even if the Georgia trial ends and he's convicted and sentenced, I still don't see jail anytime in the near future for Trump. There's going to be litigation on how he's to even be put into prison uh, when he has secret service agents that are required to protect him. Do they go to prison with him? 
Bottom line, Trump will not be in prison by the time the election rolls around next November. The chances of him going to prison during his next term, if somehow he's elected, is is probably pretty slim. Although I do think there is a very decent chance he's going to be convicted before the election. Now, last thing I want to talk about is the Puerto Rican Day Parade Day in uh, New York City. Very, very popular, famous day if you live in New York. Now, it's one thing if you don't live in New York, but if you live in the belly of the beast, you know what I'm talking about. There was a time when marches in New York City streets weren't filled with jihadists wanting to kill us. There was a time uh, before Democrats destroyed our country, before they let the Islamists slop in, uh, the illegal immigrants that now dominate the city. The city wasn't necessarily much safer then than it is now, but at least you didn't have to worry about getting stabbed to death by someone screaming Allah Akbar. And I'm talking about the 1990s. And of course, I'm talking about the Puerto Rican Day Parade that seems kind of quaint in retrospect. It was a horrible day to be outside, okay? If you were a normal walking around and you weren't involved in the parade, it was not a day that uh, you went outside. You didn't even look out the window. You stayed in your apartment, and oftentimes you just hid underneath your bed, and you waited until it was over because it was pretty rough. Uh, Stores on Fifth Avenue that had to deal with the parade because they marched down Fifth Avenue, they boarded up their windows, and this massive contingency of cars with dents and and damage and primer paint. They all seem to be painted a handful of colors, either primer red or primer gray. They'd rumble down Fifth Avenue coming from upper Manhattan, coming from the Bronx. Some of these cars were bouncing down the street with, you know, those hydraulic lifts, bouncing, bouncing, bouncing. They've had massive Puerto Rican flags on the cars painted on them or hanging off. No one was buying anything that day, so there was no reason for any store on Fifth Avenue to be open. As I said, many flags were displayed, but all Puerto Rican. If you can believe, there was a time in New York when no ISIS flags, no Hamas flags, no Palestinian terror flags were on display. Now, no man had his shirt on during the Puerto Rican Day Parade. That was a rule. You were not allowed to attend the Puerto Rican Day Parade as an attendee with your shirt on. No man didn't have a belly hanging halfway down to the ground. 50%, I would say, of the men that were present needed to urinate at some point during the parade, and 100% of them did so on the street. Getting across town from the west to the east or the east to the west was next to impossible because Fifth Avenue is right in the middle. I remember once making the (laughs) incredible mistake of going to federal prison in Brooklyn on the morning of the Puerto Rican Day Parade and totally forgetting about the parade when I got out and I was driving from the west side to the east, I was like, holy shit, the Puerto Rican Day Parade. My apartment was on the east side. It took me hours to get around it. And you had to be so careful to avoid hitting someone because everyone seemed to be pretty drunk and kind of oblivious to the cars that were trying to get around them. And as I was driving around that day, And laughing a lot. It was funny because you're seeing stuff in Midtown Manhattan that you can never see otherwise in that area except on that day. And I'm stopped in traffic. And that's all it was. It was forever stopped in traffic that day. And I see some mother with her young son. Maybe the kid was four. And he's standing on the street uh, with the mother. And she pulls down his pants. And he just takes a leak right (laughs) on the street, just in the middle in front of everybody. Johnson's hanging out. He's peeing like a fire hose. (laughs) in front of everybody. Now, there were restaurants, because it's not just on Fifth Avenue. I mean, the Puerto Rican Day Parade, it goes Fifth. You know, people are congregating on Madison. They're congregating Park Avenue. goes Lexington. You get to Third Avenue, and they're still hanging around there. So this woman with her son, I think it was around by Lex, far away from the parade. She could have gone into any restaurant that was open, put a dollar on on the bar and asked to use the bathroom, say you want a Coke. No. No chance. Not on Puerto Rican Day, Parade Day. Manhattan was the kid's toilet that day. Now, keep in mind that despite reading about 10 rapes or five stabbings during the parade the next day in the paper, it always seemed pretty safe to me. And and I've seen plenty of them. It was just very colorful and funny and disgusting, loud, lots of music, cars bouncing, bounce, bounce, bounce. 
and something obviously to avoid unless you're uh, mentally ill. So while I dreaded the Puerto Rican Day Parade Day when I lived in Manhattan, it was a lot of laughing during the day. Now here's a story that I don't think I've told on the radio. Maybe I did way back then, but I never have told it on this podcast. When I was doing talk radio in New York City from like 2006 to 2013, I was doing a Saturday show at at some point from 10 a.m. to noon. And I loved it as I had total freedom. I could talk about anything I wanted. I could do whatever I wanted. I played any music that I wanted. I remember that I oftentimes, before the show, I would go to the Dwayne Reed in the building where the radio show was. I'd get one of those giant Drake's coffee cakes, not one of the mini ones. I'm talking the one in a package, the monster size one. And I'd eat the Drake's coffee cake during the radio show into the microphone. I wanted everybody to enjoy it with me. That's the kind of guy I am. I'm a giver. Anyway, this Saturday show, I'd get great guests. I had this great producer, Frank Morano, who is now uh, has his own uh, radio show in the middle of the night on WABC. Uh, But there was an afternoon show at the station at the same time I was doing the Saturday show, and it featured Curtis Sliwa, the the Guardian Angels guy, and Gerson Barrero, a Puerto Rican journalist, kind of a a right versus left kind of show is what they were doing. I talked about this. I cross-examined Sliwa to death in the John Gotti Jr. trial. He was an alleged shooting victim, and I had really humiliated him during the cross, just whipped his ass, which is how I got into talk radio. But he was a conservative, even if he was a complete fraudster. And we had more in common politically than I did with Gerson Barrero, who was like practically a communist. Far left, anti-Israel, just disgusting political positions. Now, keep in mind, this was like, I don't know, 2009, maybe 2010, a long time ago, and before political correctness really uh, took root in New York. You could actually make fun of someone back then and not get ripped to shreds by the pronoun trans crowd. So I discussed the Puerto Rican Day Parade on my show, and the next thing I know, I mean, probably pretty much what I said here, the next thing I know, Gerson is ripping me on the afternoon drive show that he had with Sliwa. He obviously was a big fan of the Saturday show. It was annoying to me that he's ripping me because more people listen to the afternoon drive show than my wonderful Saturday show. Even though my show might have been better, the afternoon drive show has all these people in their cars commuting and uh, they got the radio on. So they're listening to this. So, of course, I uh, started ripping Gerson back on my Saturday show after. And this is radio stations kind of like this sometimes. They like there to be some fighting between hosts because it gets listeners all excited. I started to refer to him as Gerson the person. And I mentioned that I saw him with his shirt off at the Puerto Rican Day Parade. And I had heard that he was urinating in the corner of the studio at the radio station. And I just, you know, I was relentless because... You know, I tend to be that way. Eventually, Gerson just had enough. He was getting angrier and angrier, and, and Curtis was laughing at him. And Gerson just walked out, quit the afternoon show in the middle of like a show. It wasn't just because of me, I assumed, but I think he wasn't happy that he felt the station let me abuse him on the air. And he just like quit in a snit and just walked out. Anyway, that night, I get a call from the program director from the station, and he says to me, he wants me to fill in uh, as the co-host with Sliwa for Gerson uh, for the spot until Gerson can calm down and come back. Now, I had no interest in doing the show as I was busy being a trial lawyer and spending more time with Curtis. You know, it's not really something that I you know, had a great desire for. But if you know me, you know what happens next. I did have interest in making Gerson crazy and taking something of his. So, of course, I accepted. I had no interest in doing the show. I certainly had no interest in doing it long term. But I figured, I'd, you know, it would be a week or two and I'd quit or they'd get sick of me or Gerson would come back. And I just had to say yes. And I figured that I'd figure it out later. At some point, I assumed he'd stop acting like a diva and come back. Naturally, the first day I filled in, of course, I told the audience that the studio still smelled like urine from Gerson, and I promised the audience that I had my shirt on during the show, unlike Gerson, of course. 
to Gerson's credit, he was probably just sick of doing the show with Curtis as opposed to uh, me being so much better than him and abusing him on the air. And that's probably the reason why he didn't come back. He just had enough. But I didn't care. I'm big on revenge. And I stayed on that show for, I think, like a year and a half, five days a week, just out of revenge. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. You can find me on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, beyondthelegallimit.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you next week.